Top Radio member benefits are getting an upgrade with the NPR Plus podcast bundle. At just $8 a month or more, you can unlock ad-free listening, early access, and exclusive bonus content for NPR podcasts. Learn more at capradio.org slash plus. Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're in a revolving door of winter weather across the Sacramento Valley with even more snow on tap for the Sierra. The weekend brought more soaking rain and snow, including a confirmed EF1 tornado in Tuolumne County. And more is in store this week. As we get set for another round of stormy conditions, we're going to get an update on the forecast as well as the potential for flooding and severe winds with Eric Kurth, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service based in Sacramento. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. You know, it really feels like we've kind of been in this relentless, like wet and cold weather pretty much since the start of the year. What was the big headline over the weekend? Well, the big headline, I think, was some of the severe weather we had uh, through northern and even into central California. We had some strong thunderstorms, and I happened to be working through the period and put out some severe thunderstorm warnings out by Stockton. And then in the area around uh, Sonora and Jamestown, I put out a tornado warning, and this was Saturday afternoon. And we actually did confirm there was an EF1 touchdown in that area. Yeah, and that was in Tuttletown. That's near uh, New Malonis Lake. Um, When it comes to an EF1 tornado, was there any damage as a result of it? There were a couple of power poles that were snapped, as well as quite a few trees that were snapped or uprooted. Uh, So that's the uh, damage that we've seen so far. What can we expect for this week? Well, we can expect some more thunderstorms this afternoon, especially uh, from Chico southward. So we could see some of those isolated thunderstorms bringing some small hail, some heavy rain, and can't rule out that potential of funnel cloud or maybe even an isolated tornado. Hmm. There's currently a flood watch expanding from Redding down to Merced. That is a very large area in our state. Are there particular areas or even rivers that you're most concerned about? Right. Well, with the uh, the main system is going to be pushing in tonight and through Tuesday. So we're expecting some moderate heavy rain across the area. We do have, uh, of course, just widespread concerns with streams and uh, creeks flooding. But some of the rivers on the San Joaquin, the uh, Kasumnas River, Tuolumne River, could see some flooding. The uh, River Forecast Center is projecting uh, flooding at some points. And then uh, up in the Sacramento River, uh, Tehama Bridge and Ord Ferry, uh, they're projecting exceeding flood uh, stage at those points as well. Yeah, we were just talking about it this morning. I mean, you look at the Sacramento River or even just surrounding rivers. I mean, they look higher, obviously. Uh, uh, Lake Oroville, the spillway, released water for the first time since, I think, 2019. Uh, there's been releases also in the past at Folsom Dam as well. What can we expect when it comes to our surrounding rivers in the coming days? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it is just this cumulative effect, like you mentioned. It seems like it's been raining all year so far. Uh, we had a very wet early January. Uh, we did have a couple weeks of drier weather, but certainly March has been exceedingly wet. So uh, rivers are just running high. And so definitely the concern is that those areas like along uh, the Kasumnas River and Tuolumne River, those uh, 
could see some flooding. So people need to be aware, uh, especially if, if they're in known flood areas, they need to monitor the forecast. And if there's any evacuation notices, they need to be able to get out quick. So people should have an emergency kit ready to go and, and just monitor uh, you know, official information as much as possible. Is this going to be a warmer system? And I ask that because, you know, looking up to the Sierra, how much more snow is expected with with this next round? Right. And we did we have seen some snow even through the weekend, but a lot of that has been high elevation snow. It has impacted travel at the passes, causing chain controls and some holds. And we are going to get additional heavy snow up at those high elevations. So if people are planning to go over the Sierra passes, over the next few days, they should be aware that travel could be difficult uh, or impossible at times. The uh, snow level is high, but at those points from around 6,500 feet and higher, uh, we could get one to three feet of additional snow. And then some of the really high peaks could see up to five feet additional snow. So even though uh, a lot of our concerns have been with rain, uh, and this is a warm system, those high elevations are going to see quite a bit of snow, and people should be aware of that. Eric, thank you so much. You're welcome. Eric Kurth is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Sacramento. Up next, a bill setting an age limit to play tackle football in California is making its way through the state legislature. We'll hear from those both for and against the bill. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. For many Americans, tackle football is more than a sport, but a deeply rooted tradition woven into the fabric of the nation's cultural identity. And millions of children across the country are introduced to the sport well before high school. But a bill introduced by California Assemblymember Kevin McCarty, a Democrat who represents a large portion of Sacramento, would prohibit children 12 and under from playing tackle football out of concern for their brain health. Assemblymember McCarty introduced AB 734 in part due to what he says is growing research linking youth tackle football and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. It is a degenerative brain disease that's been found postmortem in the brains of former NFL and college football players. But opponents of the bill say California is already a leader in making the game safer for children, and this bill is an overreach of parental rights. So we're going to listen to the arguments both for and against this bill, which 
which is the second attempt to place an age limit on youth tackle football in California within the past five years. In a little bit, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Chris Nowinski, a neuroscientist and former college football player who supports AB 734. But first, we're beginning with Ron White, co-founder of the California Youth Football Alliance, who's lobbying state lawmakers to vote down this bill. Well, I just want to start off with a little bit about your background in youth football and, and why you love the sport. Sure. Well, love love is an understatement for sure. It, it's been a labor of love, but uh, I've spent the past three decades working in or around with tackle youth tackle football. And that consists of primarily this. I've chaired and helped build an organization in Bakersfield, which is one of the largest independent programs in the country. So I've done that for three decades. I've been a board member, a coach, a president, a league commissioner, also the California USA football delegate for the state, um, current president of California Youth Football Alliance, and uh, one of the original founders of the alliance and one of the original founders of the Save Youth Football Coalition that was founded back in 2018, and one of the folks that worked with Assemblyman Cooper out of Sacramento to help author AB1. I know that's quite a mouthful, but that's what I've done for the last three decades. Right. And AB1, we'll get into that. That became law two years ago in 2021. Let's start off with the fact that you're the executive vice president of standards and practices. And also, as you mentioned, the co-founder of the California Youth Football Alliance. Um, Tell us more about the alliance and its mission. Well, the alliance was really formed out of advocacy. Our, Our mission is to give a voice to California youth tackle football. There are thousands of participants and hundreds of organizations, but we wanted to have a linear voice for times just like this and make sure that uh, people understand what the youth tackle football community is, and we wanted to give life to that through a single voice. Why does the alliance oppose this recent bill that's moving its way through the legislature, which would essentially require a minimum age for tackle football in California? Sure. For, for us, it's very fundamental. We believe that the AB 734 that uh, McCarty is introducing honestly has to be one of the most misguided, out-of-touch pieces of legislation that we've seen. And it's really a regurgitation of what we saw back in 2018, lacks foundation and, and appears to be a single man's crusade to put an end to what we believe is an amazing sport for young athletes. Hmm. So Assemblymember McCarty, author of the bill, says that flag football is an alternative that's safer for youth 12 and under, could still give them the opportunity also to learn the skills to be successful at tackle football later in life. Why do you think this is misguided? I just think there's no foundation for it. If you look at the reasons that he listed uh, as far as this piece of legislation or the one that failed back in 2018, He listed uh, scientific reasons, and quite honestly, if you follow the science, it doesn't add up. It just simply does not add up. There is minimal longitudinal studies that have taken place, and this is unsettled science. I believe at best it's anecdotal, and it becomes his crusade. And I would challenge him on that point and looking forward to do that, actually. You mentioned AB1, and that was a new law, recently new. I mean, it became law in 2021. And I think that hits to a larger point. And since you have, like, what, three decades of experience in youth football, how has youth tackle football changed over the years and decades? Probably the best thing that you could ask me. This is not your father's football. And, And I mean that respectfully. You know, AB1 has done something that, quite frankly, hasn't been done 
in the nation. I mean, we lead the country in this type of football act that's never been seen before. So what we've done is we've taken best practices, uh, and those best practices are now codified in a piece of, of law, AB1. And that speaks to coaching certification. Education is key. We, we, there's a great amount of responsibility that comes with coaching young, young athletes. So foundational education is number one. Number two, we reduce the amount of contact. Even though these things were being done prior, now it's codified and it's unified under one piece of legislation. In addition to those items, medical staff at games, information and an opportunity to educate and inform parents on the sport. And then an item that's rarely talked about is we thought it was really critical that we make sure that young athletes are protected. And so reconditioning and certification of equipment is also built into that bill. So when you take a look at the education piece, the equipment piece, uh, the opportunity to educate and inform parents, um, we're really proud of that piece of legislation. and We want to hold it up as a guiding light for the rest of the country. Uh, and we'd like to see uh, somebody in McCarty take a look at that and realize what we're doing here is progressive and not being done anywhere else in the country. So you would say youth tackle football as it stands now is safe in California? You know, I, I don't like to use the word safe. I will use the term safer. Anytime you're in any contact sport, there is always a level of risk, whether it's boxing, which McCarty doesn't talk about, or MMA, or bicycle riding. Any sort of activity has a level of risk. I don't say the word safe. I would say that we have helped to make it safer, and we're moving to improve and evolve the sport. You were in Sacramento. You're speaking with lawmakers about AB 734, which your alliance opposes. How did those conversations go? Well, I'll be quite frank, and I'll give you a a specific conversation that I had uh, with Assemblymember Vince Fong. You know, I said, you know, I said, Vince, you know, this this bill is coming back. And he says, why? And I said, I really don't know why. It, It makes no sense to us. It seems to be one person's crusade. And the, the feedback that I've got from multiple legislators really says, you know, a lot of work was done and created through AB1. Why are we going back having this conversation again? And that is the sense and theme that I've gotten from every legislator that I've spoken to. We're having this conversation at a time when even the NFL is being called into question for for the health and and the safety of its players. Another supporter of this bill is NFL Hall of Fame defensive tackle Warren Sapp, and he called Mm -hmm. it a big step in saving our future, our kids. Other NFL legends like Troy Aikman, John Madden, Drew Brees, they all believe that young kids should not play tackle football. Does that make it more challenging to, to do your work when some of the biggest names in the game's history publicly oppose tackle football at a young age? Um, obviously, it would create some sort of optical challenge, but, but when we hear things like that, we also know that the folks that you just quoted haven't played this sport in years. And when I hear those kind of comments, it makes me believe that potentially they're out of touch with what football looks like and is today. Even me playing 20-something years ago, and that hurts to say, um, it was a different game than now. So when I hear those things, I would always want to remind them that this is not your father's sport. The game has evolved, and what we're doing now, especially in California with AB1, is critical to the future of health and safety of athletes first and the future of the sport. That is my pushback to take a look at what it is now, not what it was then. 
But even following AB1, there have been medical experts that actually are supportive of this bill. There's Dr. Brian Feely. He's chief of sports Mm -hmm. medicine at UC San Francisco. And he recently said that a concussion for a younger child is more detrimental for their long-term brain health than it is for when you're an adult. How do you respond to that? I would respond that when you talk about TBIs, I would say they wouldn't be isolated to any one activity. When I look at the largest number of of TBIs or any sort of brain trauma that occurs, typically that's assigned to riding a bicycle. The problem that I have with this, and I respect any medical opinion, but that's what it is, an opinion. My response is that this bill goes very discriminatory in nature seems to be low-hanging fruit for the youth tackle football community. I don't find myself in this conversation with riding bikes, soccer, flag football, or any of the other uh, activities that pose some sort of inherent risk. It, It feels very isolated and very discriminatory. And if you look at the piece of legislation that uh, Assembly uh, Member McCarty is laying out. You know, he he seems to have a magic bullet number of twelve or below. What's challenging for me after three decades in the sport is very is very obvious to me. Is that the area and the level of play that that he's attacking is the lowest energy environment of play. These young athletes um, do not create enough G-force. To, to create enough energy to sustain the type of, of hits that some folks are saying occur. I just don't believe it. I don't see it. And there's been very little study in this area. So for parents who may be weighing whether to enroll their child in youth tackle football, can you kind of walk us through how, how it works, especially following AB1? Sure. And I think it's a great opportunity, right? It's a great opportunity to educate and inform the public. So if we're having conversations with moms in the house and typically mom is the gatekeeper we're explaining to them what we're doing to make the game even safer the evolution of training coaches certification we're just not rolling out helmets and footballs we're taking that extra step to ensure that we're doing everything we can do to make sure that a it's a great experience for the for the child and the young athlete and b that we do it at the highest level and we take safety at the highest regard if this bill gets passed and is signed into law and tackle football is effectively banned for children 12 and under, but they can play flag football. Um, What is the greatest impact that you think will be had to football, high school football in the state? I, I think it's problematic. I've had this conversation with multiple high school coaches across the country. And the reality of it is this. Flag is, is a fun activity. Flag is not the same as youth tackle football. Many, many of the principles don't apply. But if you remove young athletes from an opportunity to play this sport below the age of 12, they may simply not play it at all. They may choose to do other things. And what you're going to see, in, in my humble opinion, because we're foundational at this point, is you're going to see a drop-off in the number of high school participants playing this sport. That, for me, is, is clear-cut. And, and I want to say this because, you know, I live in a world now where we're, we're coming off of COVID, and it seems like kids have already had so much taken away from them. So now we have an assembly member who also wants to take an activity away from many kids who come from underserved communities that need a way out, need a, an activity in their life that's positive, need mentorship. And so to McCarty, I would say, haven't, haven't kids lost enough? Now you're wanting to do this as well. So you're saying that there are socioeconomic needs that that youth football fills. Absolutely. 
football, and you're, you're, you're speaking to a product of that environment. Football, I will tell you, saved my life. I grew up in a neighborhood, if it wasn't for organized youth tackle football, I don't know what my life would become. And the truth is, this sport is embedded in large underserved communities. It is an alternative to gang violence, to drugs, to many of the other uh, pitfalls that, that our children run into on a daily basis. You take this element away, you're going to have not positive outcomes and negative outcomes. And I want to just, I want to give you an example of that. Flag football is a fun activity. Uh, you know, sometimes I feel like when these pieces of legislation come out, that it becomes a pit flag versus tackle conversation. I have zero interest in that. But here's the reality. For some of the larger kids that we're trying to get out off the couch, get off of their screens, we say more green time, less screen time. Flag football for some of the larger kids isn't as welcoming. You tackle football reveres, respects, and provides an opportunity for some of the larger kids who are finding themselves growing into their body. They may not be as athletic. They're building that confidence that flag football simply does not provide. You touched upon a concern that you have, which is a declining trend in in football. Football still remains the most popular high school sport in California, but it has declined every season since 2015. And that's according to the CIF survey. And they do this survey almost every year, I think, with the exception of a year because of the pandemic. Why do you believe participation in football at the high school level in our state has been dropping? Well, I wouldn't know that that's exactly just our state, and I'm not sure that's what you're saying. I think there's been a national drop, but I would chalk that up to being there being more things that are non-sports related. I don't quote me on the on the statistic now, but I remember reading recently that uh, 73% of kids beyond the age of 13 stop playing any organized activity. So we live in a world now where you have a lot of young athletes or or, or children, for that matter, that are. Uh, you know, glued, glued to gaming systems, glued to their phone. They're on TikTok. They're on other social media platforms. So I think there's going to be a better removal because those items were not available to me growing up. And it seems like that they're having an impact. And we want to bring kids back to the field. That's one thing I would share absolutely that we're, we're seeing. But I want to say this to you. We didn't know how COVID was going to impact the youth tackle football environment. I can tell you now, across the board in the youth community, we are seeing historical return to this game that we have not seen in about 10 years. That's a positive outlook. I can't speak to the high school because we're still, you know, moving up through the ranks, so to speak. But in the youth tackle football world, numbers are way up and we're really excited about that. Finally, based on the conversations that you've been having at the state capitol, are you optimistic that AB 734 won't pass? Or if it did pass, it won't be signed by the governor if it goes to his desk? Absolutely optimistic. When you look at the work that Assemblyman Jim Cooper put into this really common sense piece of legislation, AB 1 and the governor signed into law, I believe that Governor Newsom knows the work that was put in and the strides that are made, I believe that the legislature understands who we are, what we do, and why we do it. So I'm extremely op- optimistic. But beyond that, I'm even more optimistic that people in the state are going to stand up. They're going to stand up to big government and say to them, no one has a, a better role in the safe and, uh, health and safety of my child than I do in my home. And in 2018, that showed up big time for us. 
parents are saying, hey, we're, we're the ones making those decisions for our child. And I think that's what you're going to see again uh, uh, in spades. Ron, thank you for the time. Thank you. Ron White is with the California Youth Football Alliance discussing why he opposes Assembly Bill 734, which would eliminate tackle football for children 12 and under in California. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. We're going to continue the conversation by hearing from a supporter of this bill. Dr. Chris Nowinski is a neuroscientist. He's also co-founder of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Dr. Nowinski is also a former college football player and professional wrestler and believes banning tackle football from the age of 12 and under in California is an important step to protecting children from a harm that he says they can't fully understand. Dr. Nowinski, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So we're talking to you because you're a neuroscientist, but you also played college football at Harvard, afterward became a professional wrestler with the WWE. I would imagine to a lot of people, myself included, that's not a direct path into neuroscience. How did these experiences shape the work that you do now? Yes, not a direct path. The only reason I got into neuroscience is because I damaged my brain from those activities. And when I started doing them, when I signed up for football as a 13-year-old, I didn't quite realize what all those concussions or what CTE could do to my brain. And when I learned that in my mid-20s, I thought, geez, that's a big price to pay and maybe we should reconsider who takes these risks and when they take them. What neurological impacts did you sustain? I developed persistent post-concussion symptoms that still, some are with me today. I had chronic headaches for 15 years. I developed REM sleep disorder, so I've never slept the same, and I act out my dreams, and I, I dream about monthly that I'm choking to death and wake up and can't be convinced that I'm not. I also take medication every day to help with my cognition. It usually start as a headache drug. But uh, I found when I try to get off it, that uh, the headaches return and I feel foggy. And so I think I'm probably on it for life. You're also the co-founder of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. And I imagine the reason why you created this foundation is because, you know, you're not alone in this. Right. And I, re- I remember when I first being sort of surprised when, when I first had the insight to, hey, concussions are much more serious than you realized these long-term effects are much more serious. I reached out to athletes I'd played with who had retired from concussions. What I found out was they weren't doing better. I thought everybody, you step away, you get you, you get better, and you, you got out in time. In fact, I found out they were still had chronic issues just like I did, except for no one talked about them because who, no one wants to listen to somebody complain. And you know, powerful ex-athletes don't want to admit they're not the same person they once were. You fully support AB 734. You state that it's time to protect young children from the harm that they can't understand. As a former football player, now a neuroscientist, why do you believe young children shouldn't be allowed to play tackle football? Yes, I support AB 734. And it's because we have now established very clearly that playing football for too long will give a lot of people chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a degenerative brain disease that we can only diagnose postmortem that we originally saw in boxers. And nobody considered until 15 years ago to start looking at other athletes. We have now studied the brains of more than six or 700 football players. The vast majority have had it. 
it's been a lot of pros and college players, but we're also seen it in a, about a quarter of our high school football players. And what's very clear is that the longer you play, the greater your risk. It's just like smoking and lung cancer, that one cigarette or one year of smoking is nothing compared to 10 years of smoking, two packs a day. And when you look at a sport like football, you know, that I had a great time in playing, you realize it's a dangerous sport. That's what you realize. I, I, I mean, I just lost my old roommate and the captain of my Harvard football team, my senior year, Chris Eitzman, he died just over a year ago. We could not pull him out of a terrible spiral. Um, he knew he had CTE and he ended up having CTE when he died and it contributed to some very bizarre behaviors. And now, now I'm in touch with his wife and trying to help their four kids and this is a very real issue. And his problem was he's successful. He was successful. He's a good player. And what people need to realize is if you sign your child up for football when they're young and they become good at it or they like it and they play 10 years, they're at a very real risk for CTE. And so to me, as a football player, the logical solution is, hey, Football is not a skill sport. Nothing you do as, a, as, a, as an eight-year-old in the field is going to matter what you, well, what you do in high school, what you do in college. And so if you want kids to enjoy football, but not make everybody who enjoys it and succeeds develop CTE, you've got to start kids later. You've got to lower the number of years they play. And a logical place to start is age 12. It's insane to me that children are not allowed in a weight room before age 12. There's, there's very few parents who will put their kid on a bench press at eight years old and say, let's start maxing out because they believe it's bad for their joint development. Well, I will tell you that letting a child get hit in the head 350 times a year by other athletes will change their brain development. And study after study out of our team at Boston University and scientists around the world is showing the same thing. And so it's only fair to children to say, hey, you know, sports is about making you a better person person and a better athlete. It's, and you should never train your brain health for those things. We can teach you to develop your yourself in other ways without giving you a brain disease. If football causes CTE, kids shouldn't play until at, you know, at least maybe puberty, maybe later. If, it was, if I was advising you as a parent, I wouldn't put my kid in a, in a tackle or, or high school. But 12 is a very good compromise that no reasonable person who wants their child to be successful in life, should be fighting. And if they don't believe that CT is real, come visit the brain bank and see these hundreds and hundreds of cases. I mean, literally, I just we have a helpline at the Concussion Legacy Foundation. And just before this call, I was trying to find a psychiatrist or a mother who has put together that her child, who started playing football at the age of six and played through college, is now been diagnosed bipolar and is showing all these signs. I'm sure we'd find CT in there. And she is desperate to keep him from uh, dying by suicide because he has no interest in living anymore. And this is a daily thing for me, that we are trying to pull these young men out of these spirals. For most of them, I believe it was because they started too young and therefore played too long. And we shouldn't be doing that to kids. Some would argue that significant strides have already been made in the state and that this bill is is misguided because it's not your dad's football anymore. And I'm using that in quotation marks. You know, even since mm -hmm. 2021, there's AB1 that would the California Youth Football Act. 
that became law, which requires youth football to follow many of the same safety and education guidelines of high school teams, and that California essentially is a leader across the country, that they're aware of these risks and they're making these safety changes. But I would imagine you don't think this goes far enough. No, I mean, there we have no reason to believe the existing bill for youth football will prevent CTE in youth football players. You're still allowed to hit a couple days a week. If you can get hit in the head three days a week, 50 times a day, you can still get CTE. These are not real limits. These are not smart limits. We shouldn't be saying, is it okay to hit a kid in the head 200 times a year or 100 times a year? We should be saying, we should be hitting kids in the head at all. The changes that have been made, if, if you could have a, a simple analogy to understand, this is like when the cigarette industry said, we're going to solve cancer by adding filters and we're going to take the tar level down a little bit. How has that worked for us? Oh my gosh, people are still dying of lung cancer. It's just a few fewer people than there used to be. And so, no, the bill is, it's, it's not how you protect kids. When we talk about whether kids should go in indoor tanning, we didn't say it's only once a week instead of, you know, four times a week. We said you shouldn't be doing it. When we say how much should alcohol should children drink, it's not, well, it's safe as long as you only have a few beers a week when you're 10 years old. We know that it's bad for their brain development. We do not let them do it. This is the exact same thing. Do you think, or, you know, because it's not only youth football, I understand that, you know, that football, there is a lot of tackling, but, you know, you can get a concussion from MMA or soccer. MMA is mixed martial arts, other activities, even like bike riding. Do you think a bill like this should be expanded to prohibit children from 12 and under from from these types of activities in sports? That's why I'm not talking about concussions, right? Concussions happen in all walks of life. And this is not about banning concussions because concussions in the absence of hundreds of other hits to the head don't seem to cause CTE. And every time we look at controls of people who even had concussions, they don't get CTE. There's something really bad about getting a hit in the head dozens of times a week. The football is basically a CTE creating machine. Football is the largest group of people that we can help now, the largest group of young men where we're not going to be taking anything away from them. Do I think your child should box? No. Should I think your child should be hit in the head? No. I mean, no. And if we can get this through in football, I would be very excited to go and do those in these other sports. But football is where the largest group of people are. And it's also where the largest body of evidence is. When you think about CT, if you think about it as a boxer's disease, we have diagnosed now 10 times as many American football players as boxers with CT worldwide. It is ugly what we're seeing. Um, and we just, we just, I just believe it to my core as somebody who played football and had a lot of fun playing it, it's not fair to give a young child CTE. And you do not understand CTE until you are old enough to have very, you know, do things like vote or serve in the military. And it's amazing to me every time I talk to a college football player who finally realizes what CT might be doing to them. And they're like, God, I already have 10, 15 years into the game. I might as well keep going because there's a good chance I'm screwed no matter what. And that's a, that's a bad place to put a kid when they're finally realizing what the big future they have ahead of them and how important their brain is going to be to having a career and supporting a family and having normal relationships. How do you think your life would have been different if you didn't play tackle football? You know, because also football affords a lot of opportunities as well. I mean, how do you think your life would have been different? If I didn't play tackle football, I would probably be 50 pounds lighter and had been a college basketball player because I was recruited to play both sports. And I chose to play football because I thought it was cooler 
And when I had testosterone coursing through my body in a big way when I was a teenager, I just loved to hit people. And I'm not saying we should take that away. You know, once you have testosterone and want to hit people, sure, if you're in high school and you want to go bash people, that's fine. But I, for that pre-testosterone group, that pre-puberty group, I don't know, this is just putting kids in costumes and, you know, this is entertainment for the parents. Uh, it's not fair to the kids to be to being exposed to a brain disease, CTE, not fair to 50-pound kids with a five-pound helmet on their head to be running into people over and over, asked to do a dangerous activity that is impossible to do safely. You cannot teach a child to tackle somebody safely every time. Football is one of those sports also. It can be a gateway in a good way. In underserved communities, you know, it can be life-changing, essentially. An experience that helps young athletes have activities outside perhaps violence, substance abuse. Are you concerned that limiting the age for children to participate in tackle football could eliminate a pathway to to lift themselves out of difficult socioeconomic situations? Not in the least am I concerned about that. Let's be clear, there is no child in America who's getting recruited off of their youth tackle football film at 10 years old, all right? The only thing that high school and college coaches care about is, can your kid run? Are they fast? Are they a good athlete? You can see all of that, learn all of that in flag football. So the idea that we're taking any opportunity away is a ridiculous argument, and we should stop saying that because it's just not fair to the kids. What about the argument some parents may have in terms of, I'm going to decide what's best for my kid, and that this bill, potential law, is overreach? That's the conversation that I think this boils down to, is where is the line for government to protect children, right? And we have that conversation about all sorts of activities. The government has to set minimum ages for all sorts of dangerous activities. This is, I mean, again, it, what it comes down to when you can smoke and when you can drink and when you can buy a gun and when you can drive a car and when you can get hit in the head 500 times a year and possibly get CT. I do believe it's the government's role to weigh in on something like this. This football has a massive tradition that was built before we understood CTE. And so it has momentum that we need to change. And we have to remember that the NFL lied about CTE for more than a decade. And so there's a ton of misinformation floating around with parents that was sown by the NFL because they didn't want kids to turn away from the game. They're trying to build a pipeline of future fans. And so I do understand that parents would be offended about, can my kid do this? Why can they do this? And why, why can't they do that? But those parents also no longer complain when they have to put their kid into a car seat year after year after year. I have to buckle my two kids in every day. I don't question it because I know it's the right thing to do and the data is there and we've all learned to accept it. Finally, you just mentioned you're a parent as well down the road, you know, maybe years from now. How will you approach the conversation if one of your kids wants to play tackle football just like you did? There is no way that my son will ever play tackle football before high school. I didn't play before high school. I was named captain of my team on the third day because I had been a good soccer player, basketball player, and I could move. <laughs> and that's what I hope people understand is that there is no real skill building going on unless you're a quarterback or a kicker. The rest of us are just, if you can run and you can hit, they're going to put you on the field and you can pick up this game pretty easy. And so you're not going to be taking anything away by starting a little later. You're just going to take miles off their brain. But no, no one's... No one's hitting my kids in the head. They're not going to hit a soccer ball either. And that's the rule until 11. They can't, but my kids won't do it probably 14 at least. 
and uh, anything else where they're getting hit in the head over and over again because I've seen what it's done to my friends and I've seen what it's done to my heroes and it's not fair. Given that, you know, when it comes to the, your friends and those heroes, they were all adults. Do you think there should be a time when football just gets phased out? Tackle football and at the collegiate and even professional sense? I'm not saying it will happen, but I'm just just yeah. hearing what no. you're saying. No, it, I mean, well, no, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm also coming at this as a former professional wrestler who used to let people hit me in the head with metal garbage cans for entertainment, right? Like, I didn't understand what they were doing to me, but I still don't think you can tell adults they can't do a dangerous job to make a living. Especially, I'm an advisor of the NFL Player Association. They have informed consent. They have people advocating for a safer game. And it's frankly safer at the NFL level than it is at the youth level. They hit less in practice to the NFL level because there's a union. If five-year-olds had a union, they would get rid of all hitting in practice. So no, I am not, I'm not, we don't have to take away college, we don't have to take away pro, we still have to tweak it and make it safer. And we do have to acknowledge that there's no voice for college football players to make it safer and they hit way too much in practice, but it doesn't have to go away. You can do lots of dangerous things as adults, but informed consent is a very important idea. Dr. Nowinski, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Dr. Chris Nowinski is with the Concussion Legacy Foundation, explaining why he supports a bill which would eliminate tackle football for children 12 and under in California. Still ahead, the all-female Mariachi Bonitas joins us to share their debut album. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Since 2020, Denora Klinger and her all-female mariachi band have graced concert halls and festivals throughout Northern California and the world with their soulful music. And after nearly three years of performing, Mariachi Bonitas have released their first album. The album is titled Por Ser Mujer, and it's dedicated to the strength and the perseverance of women all over the world. Mariachi Bonitas celebrated the release of their debut album last night at the Sofia, home of the B Street Theater in Sacramento. Joining us now is Denora Klinger with Mariachi Bonitas. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vicky. You, Thank you. You just joined us in August, and we I were know. talking about you mm-hmm. know putting together this debut al- album, what, six, seven months later? Correct. Here we are. Here we are. So the album is named after its title song, Por Ser Mujer. Por Ser Mujer. Talk to us about it. Okay, it's a it's a song that I uh, intend to pay tribute to women around the world. Uh, I think the job of women... Uh, 
you know, has been overrated, uh, underrated, and we need to deserve a better spot, you know, in, in every area of society. So uh, I want to just let him know, uh, all women in the world, that we are important, that we are bonitas, that we are intelligent and capable of doing a lot of things. So it's, it's a little bit of a uh, say thank you for, for being women, you know, and strong and Incapable. I saw that you had a great turnout this oh, weekend. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. We are really uh, thankful for for the response. People were really, really happy. Enjoyed it so much, and yeah, it was a magical night. Well, let's listen to the title song, "Por Ser Mujer." challenges that life brings those who are brave those who are fighters don't give up life can be difficult for women all around but we're determined to push on and to advance this world might try to set us back and give us problems but as you know as women we will take a stand we will take a stand you know <laughs> How is it like actually hearing your album, putting all of this work into a debut album and now performing it in front of people and, yeah. and letting the world to listen to it? Yeah, it is a dream come true. <laughs> Believe me, I when I write music, you know, I'm not thinking exactly in that moment. All what I want is a product that is really mean, meaningful and people love. And I think we, we got, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's an understatement. <laughs> uh, the next song we're going to listen to is Cancion del Campo. So what can you share with us about this song? This is a beautiful song uh, written by a, a gentleman called Pepe Guizar and uh, speaks about, you know, the, the rural life, the beauty of the simple things of people living in beautiful rural areas and uh, how much we miss the, those, those kind of places. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. You're going you're gonna to hear. Let's take a quick listen.
Denora, you obviously saw something that was lacking. That's why you created Mariachi Bonitas in mm-hmm. in 2020. I mean, typically when you think of mariachis, you don't you don't think of an all female mariachi band. Mm-hmm. And the response that you've received mm-hmm. really shows that you really saw a need that people wanted to listen to. You're being recognized by the Sacramento Bee, one of the top 25 Latino change makers, uh, the National Association of Women Business Owners. They awarded you Achievement Against All Odds Award. What, yeah. what is that? Must be so gratifying. It is. It is beautiful. Uh, I feel that you know all this hard work is paying off. And as I said before, you know it, we need more women uh, in, in all areas of society. And being a musician in this town is has been a blessing. People are really, really receptive and really supportive. And. Uh, I am very humbled for all these recognitions. We're going to play one more song. This one is titled Ramses. When can we see you all live? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you know, we've already started planning the tour (laughs) to present this album. In the meantime, we are playing uh, at Denayos. We are playing in in wineries and weddings. So people can reach out to us and... and, uh, uh, let us know when they want to hear us, it, you know. It's we'll emotional be, for you. It is. It is very emotional, yeah. <laughs> and you have a wonderful voice and Thank you. so, so talented. Thank Quickly, you, Vicky. before we let you go, because you also are really instrumental in the Mariachi Festival in Sacramento each and every year. Absolutely. Um, what can you kind of preview for us? Wow, it's going to be a fantastic show. I can tell you this. We're going to do it uh, at the uh, Safe Credit Union Performing Arts. This is on October 29th. So Sunday, on October 28th, we're going to do it in San Jose at the Civic Auditorium. So we're bringing amazing talent. Uh, Of course, Mariachi Bonitas will perform. And yeah, it's going to be another edition of the Mariachi Festival de Sacramento. That means you have to come back. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Do you invite me? Of course, absolutely. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you, Vicky. Wonderful album. Thank you. Thank you so much for playing our music. Thank you. (laughs) Denora Klinger is a singer and manager of Mariachi Bonitas, sharing their debut album. We have more 
more information on our Insight page. And that is it for Insight today. You can learn more about all of our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to join the conversation, you can email us at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director and engineer is Mark Jones. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.